You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest for episode 167 is David Christian, long of the British band Comet Gain. You're right now listening to Strength from their second album, Magnetic Poetry. He's released 10 albums since 1995, the most recent being his first under his own name, 2021's Those We Met Along the Way. We'll be discussing mums and dads and other ghosts from that album. And then an arcade from The Warm Rain That Falls by Comic Gain from Howl of the Lonely Crowd, 2011. And The Kids in the Club from Realistes back in 2002. And that song's actually a remake of an early single from 1994. We'll conclude with a song called Mid-HTs from Comic Gain's most recent album, Fire Razors Forever, 2019. For more information, look up Comic Gain on Bandcamp. For more about this podcast, look to nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. I encourage you to support the effort at patreon.com slash nakedly examined music. So I will have played a little of Strength as one of your early singles from Magnetic Poetry 1997 by your band Comic Gain. To start off, we're going to get pretty quickly to the, the brand new thing, but I guess, can we get a little picture of the arc of your career before we get that? That, from what I understand... There was a whole different band, Comma Game Mach 1, yeah. uh, and that by the time th- that strength, this was kind of your debut of the the new thing with uh, vocalist Rachel Evans that you still are working with now. Is that correct? Yeah, we're, we're, not, we're, not, we're, not all, we're all still alive, so I guess. Okay. I mean, yeah, until enough of us die, I guess that's, that's it. You know, I just continue. But there's the first expression of the band, incarnation of the band, that group of people made two records kind of one and a half records mm-hmm. and it was me and then the rest of the band who kind of had this thing of maybe we were going to be popular and the dream of being on top of the pops which is the english uh, kind mm-hmm. of chart program these kind of pop dreams that you can have when you're young and don't think things through and i was just completely on the opposite end of the spectrum where i was like i want to be a failure i want to be some kind of cult nobody and just have records that you know, only matter to a few people. And I guess I won. So, <laughs> you know, there's the prophecy fulfilled there. So were you the main songwriter even in that initial thing? Or was it just, obviously, when you're, when you're retooling and replacing everybody, then you can become, you know... <laughs> As a rule of thumb, for the early, the first incarnation of the band, which was this album, Casino Classics, mm-hmm. really, if I didn't sing the song, I probably didn't write it. Okay. If I did, I definitely did. I may have uh, had a contribution, a bad contribution to the other songs, but by and large, Sam, who was the guitar player, and Sarah, who sang the other songs, did their songs. All this is by way of your now done your first official solo album. Yeah. But it seems like Comet Gain, starting with Strength here, was already, you were the, the sole songwriter, the main songwriter. There were- when we originally started in a bedroom, it was me doing it. I was an awkward, shy person, so I, I kind of felt like you couldn't have a band unless there were other people in it also contributed. So I asked people, friends of mine, basically. Some of them I didn't really know that well, but I thought that would be good. I mean, the whole kind of history of Comic Game is me just basically asking people that I know. Whether they can play instruments or not, it didn't really matter. It was just kind of like, yeah, we get to hang out. You can get drunk for free. And that's why there's been a lot of people in Comic Game, some of which can play instruments, some of which can't. <laughs> All right, so this solo album that finally came out, and I see actually on your Bandcamp page, it's not just one solo album. I guess there's one fully produced solo album, but you've had uh, oh, yeah. several recent releases here, including the Pinecone Companion. That was nice that we get demos of these songs on the uh, David Christian and the Pinecone Orchestra for those we met on the way, the th- main thing we're promoting today. So that was that was fun to hear the quite different demo to this song. You had picked the finale track off of the brand new for those we met along the way, mums and dads and other ghosts. Can you say a few words about where you're at with this solo project and this song in particular before we hear it and talk about both versions? Partly it's because I live in a different country from the rest of the band and I kind of always thought a band should be a band and you hang out and so on. And I kind of, you know, why not? 30 years, pretty much. It would be nice to make a record in your own. The only thing that stopped me before was the fact that I didn't think anyone would want to listen to my voice for 40 minutes or whatever it is. But then I decided that it didn't, no one listened anyway, so it didn't matter. And I had a, a set of songs that I kind of thought would be a good solo record, and I wanted to do it. And this song in particular was very personal. You know, solo albums are personal by nature, so this was a personal song. 
it would have been more only really more comfortable being on a solo record. And it's that kind of song that has to end a record, if that makes sense. You know, there are certain songs that start records and certain songs that are good for the middles. And this was a good ending because it kind of summed up a few things that I wanted to sing about on, on the whole thing of the album. Unlike a lot of the songs I write, or unlike most of the songs I write, I kind of don't mind it. I kind of think it worked. It sounds exactly how I had it in my head or my heart of how it should sound. Don't worry, my love, it goes so soon. So leave the dust in the room. This life will have no end and live it soon. I'll tell you what my dad told me. Don't make my mistakes and set the monsters free. And I'm still waiting for that day. Tom Courtney finally gets on that train and comes down to London to choose his own heaven. Life is a series of goodbyes Until you farewell yourself and all your lies Every street's a bookmark of your days And I still love them in their winding ways It's just moms and dads dreaming that you're Remember me. Remember me. 
still remember how it used to be. My friends were my family. I belonged. We sang our stupid songs. A bunch of freaks. We would talk for weeks. Glorious seven and a half minutes of this. Oh no, sorry. It's uh, that's that's on the on the demo. It's seven and a half minutes. On this, it's only six and a quarter. The demo thing is seven and a half minutes because I I made a mistake and there was a minute and a half of silence at the start, so I had to fill it up with something else. <laughs> so you put a different song at the beginning. They're kind of demos that were done after I made the album. Oh, okay. So that's the way I do things. It's like I'll do the demos after I make the album. Interesting, because it's a totally different. Melody. In fact, let's. I'm gonna go ahead and insert the beginning of the other version. Not the beginning, which which is a completely different song, but the beginning of the recognizable part. Let's stick to talking for the moment about the studio version, let's say. So was this recording by yourself? And then it looked like from your press release that you kind of invited a bunch of people to overdub stuff. Or was there some sort of you and a bass player and a drummer in a room at some point? It's difficult because I'm quite in a quite rural part of France and where before everything's been in London and you're half a minute away from a record studio or something. I had to really search for somewhere to record that be suitable. And it turned out that there was a farm barn in the middle of nowhere in a part of France that's a few hours away from me. But there were people that knew people that I knew. So therefore, I kind of would feel more comfortable. We went there and there were these lovely guys, Mike and Alison, who are English, but have lived in France for a long time. We have this great band called Heist. And I have a friend called Newman, who's in this band Zombie Zombie, and used to be in this band Herman June. And he's by trade, more of a kind of kraut rock synthesizer guy, but he's a fun guy to hang out with and I hadn't seen him for a while. So I thought, do you want to come and drum on this record? Because I really thought it had to have a good drummer. I kind of felt confident doing everything else. Like, you know, all those early 70s kind of singer-songwriter records, they have good drums, you know, these kind of session musician drummers. So I kind of thought, as long as the drums are all right, then I can kind of get away with just being me, a bit out of tune and everything. By luck and chance... Mike, who was producing a record and everything, is an incredible piano player and bass player and everything else. So he kind of filled in on other things. I wasn't expecting that. And the steel? But then afterwards, it was sending it to friends. Like So the pedal steel on that song was a guy called Joe. He's in London and he's in a group called The Hanging Stars. We're kind of a cosmic psychedelic cowboy band. And Jerry from Teenage Fan Club or ex-Teenage Fan Club played bass and sung on it, and so on. So it was kind of, there are members of Comic Game, I think, on there. I, can't, I actually can't remember who's playing on that song. I think it's mainly like Jerry from Teenage Fan Club. and then Is there a mandolin there somewhere? It's possible. <laughs> it's, either, it's me, Mike, who produced the record, and the aforementioned superstars. Well, yeah, overall it has sort of a the feel of the band, you know, because you've got the nice piano and you've got... Well, I guess there's not pedal steel in that, but I mean, it's clearly one of those kind of Dylan-esque songs that, you know, it's just you strumming and singing and you can, and it lasts a long time and there's not a lot of repetition in it. And interestingly, the other thing I got from the demo, rather, you sent me lyrics and there are whole verses that were not in this version. Were those that were added after the fact for this quote unquote demo version on the Pinecone Companion? Or were those things that were left out when you actually got to record this? I always write way too many words, especially a song like that. I kind of just write pages and pages of words when I know what it's about. And then I have to cut them out. And some of the ones you have to cut out because you can't actually sing them. You leave them out by accident because you're singing it and you're just like, oh, I forgot to do that. It's too late. And then they, they, they're actually they're kind of an integral part, you know, the heart of the song or something pretentious like that. Then... I mean, I don't normally put lyrics in the records. The lyric sheet I got to be able to put that I sent you 
I could have added the words that I wanted. And then with the pinecone companion thing, I kind of wanted to change some of the words anyway. I think, you know, songs, you kind of hear them again. You kind of think, I could have sung that better or this sentence is better than that. Well, when you have to live with it live, you know, singing it again and again or dredging it up three years later, five years later. It's usually because I forget what the actual words are. And then I start singing other things. And then those other things become the actual lyric just because I keep forgetting what the original one is. And people get cross because you're singing something completely different and you forget that that's the, the actual original. So as long as it's all part of what it's about and it all fits, I don't, it doesn't matter if it's amorphous. Just an example that seemed especially telling, and I didn't even listen specifically on the ballad, on the, on the demo, to see if this was in there, but right at the end, so you've been talking about, I still remember how it used to be, my friends were my family, where I belonged, we sang our stupid songs, bunch of freaks, and okay, and then is inserted in your lyric sheet, now I call your names, the wind just drags the words away, it's time to live for this beautiful day, remember me, I'll remember you, but that whole couplet, call your names, the words drags away, the sort of poignant thing is just lifted out of there was that a was that a case of you know we don't actually need that or because it seems pretty like it's the stinger to the whole song well yeah yeah that's why i kind of put it in the in the lyric sheet because i'm kind of sad that i didn't sing it i think i didn't sing it because it was actually difficult to sing oh okay (laughs) it's actually and there's a lot of that case of like you're in the mood and you're just doing it and then you realize you've forgotten something but you haven't got any time left (laughs) or something like that or oh that will do and then you realize too late, I didn't sing the best bit or the, the bit that is kind of the crux. Or That's probably the case for nearly every song I've ever written. At least in this case, I can kind of put it in the lyric sheet. Or Well, so just to address the metaphysics of the song, if I can be, seize the day, don't get hung up on that thing that was at the beginning. Don't worry, my love, it all goes so soon. In other words, death is leave the dust in the room. This life will have no end and we'll live it soon, which sounds like heaven. What is the initial sentiment there? This life will have no end and we'll live it soon. Well, it's more of that kind of thing of we are not, we are present in the, in the present. Like a lot of my favorite songwriters. So an eternity in the present. So in other words, the no end part is what's sticking me there. I've consistently dwelled upon the past in some songs, like some of my favorite songwriters. And I kind of felt like I wanted to, this album was like an exorcism of the past whilst kind of trying to kind of be in the present. You know, there's nothing more nostalgic than looking back on families and life like that. And while at the same time, I mean, each verse is kind of has a different element of past, present or future. And that in a way, you're supposed to be tying it. <laughs> you know, when you, when you write these things, you don't expect to be explaining them. So <laughs> it's okay to just push back and say, you know, it doesn't have to hold together. It just sounded good in my mouth. But for instance, summoning up, still waiting for the day, Tom Courtney finally gets on that train. I had to look up, which actor is this? Like, why that image in particular? One of my favorite films is this film, Billy Liar, which is early 60s English film with Tom Courtney and Judy Christie. And he's this daydreamer. A lot of, you know, a lot of people were in my kind of era, and he was like a folk hero to us because he was this kind of shy, strange, daydreaming guy. And Judy Christie is this almost kind of siren kind of adventurous sprite who is like, come with me, come get up. He's in a north, I should point out, he's in some kind of like drab northern town. And she's like, come to London, live your life, be, you know, be the, the dream you want to be. It's this thing of like, over the rainbow, there is your life over, over there, come with me. And he decides to, yeah, okay, fuck it, let's go. And they go, on the, they go to the train station and then the very last minute, he just kind of doesn't get on the train. It's much more melodramatic and melancholic and sweet when you actually watch the film, but it's such a kind of depressing moment, but you understand it, where he's, I'm just going to stay here. It's kind of like Jimmy Stewart in It's a Wonderful Life, where he dreams of going around the world, but he, he just stays where he is, because it's somehow there's more comfort there, and that's his life. And it's kind of like the English kitchen sink version of that, where he just, I'm just going to stay here, I can't do it, I can't make that leap into the unknown. So that in the song, I kind of decide that he... Just do it. Just go. <laughs> I think the name of the trope now for the Julie Christie character is a manic pixie dream girl. I don't know if you've heard this in yeah. <laughs> feminist circles of like, no, depressed dudes. Some beautifully energetic young woman is not going to come in and revive your soul and make you actually pay attention to life. That you got to just do that yourself. The witch's cave. 
we're not going to go through every verse like this. It's a long song. <laughs> but yeah, this was another evoking the spirit of a grandmother. And again, there's a little piece in the demo, I Know You'll Always Miss Her, that is pulled out. Grandma comes before she feels the same as each other. I know you always miss her. She sings, I'm still swimming the heart of my stream, still stitching my life. But what does this even mean? You're quoting the grandmother. I'm swimming the heart of the stream, still stitching my life seam by seam. Holy, I don't know. Can you just say a little about how imaginative is, or as opposed to from your life, is this? Each verse is addressed to a different mm-hmm. verse. And the second verse is, I mean, basically my partner, Anne-Law, she has had a grandmother. She loved dearly, had a big bond with. She was a seamstress. So hence the stitching my life, seam by seam, that was her job. They came from the Basque country in France and they would, when, as kids, my partner and her brother would go to these witches. It's, very, it's a very kind of witchy area. There's a lot of kind of that kind of thing going on. They would head to these witches' caves in the mountains that they would go to. That whole verse is kind of like a tribute to, I knew her quite well and I could, she couldn't speak any English. I couldn't really speak Basque or French at all, and, but we kind of got on very well and I kind of liked her a lot so it was that first was a kind of tribute to her and to the loss that my partner was feeling about and it ties in with what the song's about really about people families and how you feel about them and how they affect you and and then this next one I hope your life is beautiful that you fill up your is this sort of that's addressed to my son Emil, oh, okay all right that makes sense so, yeah so that was more like the past meaning me speaking to the future meaning my son it's not just dispelling ghosts. It is that you as future ghost. <laughs> yeah, I will be his future ghost. This basically is what I'm saying to him, like, God forbid, but when I die of whatever bizarre disease, and maybe in 20 years, he goes, oh, I might as well listen to, that, to his records or something. This is like my message to his future self. <laughs> so I, yeah, something like that. I've wondered for posterity purposes if it might be better to have fewer albums to make it's because then my kids are more likely to actually listen to all of them. Yeah, well, yeah I'll just I'll just like leave one or two. The other ones I'll just kind of put a big sticker. I'll put a big sticker saying like, don't bother. Don't bother. You won't like this one. You won't like any of them. Still. Well, let's get the second song out there just to kind of contrast the different ways that you make music. You had picked from this Howl of the Lonely Crowd album, 2011. An arcade from the warm rain that falls. Can you say a little about where you're at at this point with Comet Gain? I think the main thing with this is that Sean Price, who was putting our record, who ran this label, Fortuna Pop, a lovely guy and friend, he decided to kind of get us to be recorded by Edwin Collins, who was a, he's a big hero of Orange Juice, who was a big hero of mine and his and, and many other people, because he had a great studio and so on. And it was one of those kind of things like, really? Can we do that? And he kind of paid for this kind of thing. So it was, although we did half, the other half of the record at Bark Studios, which was also a great place where Felt and other bands like that had been had recorded. So we had this really nice thing of like, the record would sound good, whatever the songs were and so on. So I kind of wanted to do a record that was like the best bits, well, I thought the best kind of styles of comic gain. So there's, the first side is a bit more kind of garagey or punky or, both underground or pop, all these kind of different things. And the, the other side was more kind of lower songs, maybe. It's all mixed up. That song is a strange one because I used I went for a phase where I just decided to get up really early in the morning and write songs for like an hour rather than the, what I usually did, which was just get drunk and write them at four in the morning. And that song came from that, basically based on the, a one line from William Burroughs' book saying an arcade from the warm rain that falls, which I thought was a beautiful line. I had no idea what it meant. So I had to kind of like invent my own expression of what it, what it meant. And then what I thought it meant, because that's the, that's the great way, you, you know, poetic lines is how you reflect on them. It's how you see them. Unless they're very specific, you know, you kind of have your own version of what this means to me. So to me, it was like a thing about somebody who was at the lowest ebb or having a hard time or whatever and it was a kind of a place to go a solace or a, some kind of utopian dream world i don't know so and i wrote it as a kind of a letter to a friend saying i'm fucked up but there's this place i can go <laughs> something like that 
message today I'm sorry what happened to you It shouldn't have to be that way I fucked my jeans in blue and grey shirt My fancy shoes are covered in dirt I can't get any work Since I've been here I get lost a lot I'm like a worn out free fountain St. James Park A prospect park Out there in the dark Before we do that song, we just have one ad for you today. The Nebia by Moen Quattro Showerhead. Why not upgrade your showering experience and save a lot of water in the process? Quattro is the world's best high-pressure water-saving shower and starts at just $119. Quattro was designed by former Tesla, NASA, and Apple engineers who spent years researching and developing a superior shower experience that saves water. I have one of these. It is called the Quattro because it has four spray modes. It's got two powerful high-pressure spray modes in addition to the popular Nebbia Spa Spray. I've got the hand shower version. You could use a fixed rain shower one as well, available in five beautiful finishes. Each and every mode of this Quattro saves 40 to 50% of water compared to a traditional shower and yet is powerful enough to remove shampoo from even the thickest hair. I prefer the Spa Spray mode. It really fills the space allowing me to dwell on the humiliations of my day and what I should have said in response to things people said to me that I didn't actually say. Uh, the installation is very easy. It's a three-minute process. It's as easy as changing a light bulb. They've also got other awesome sustainable bathroom accessories, such as the new quick-dry earth mat, shower shelves, shower curtains, hooks, bath mats, and more. Nebby by Moen Quattro starts at just $119 exclusively on Nebbia.com, and Nebbia gave us a special discount just for our community. Go to nebbia.com slash N-E-M and use code N-E-M at checkout to get 10% off all Nebbia products. This is a great deal to jump on. Again, go to nebbia.com slash N-E-M. That's N-E-B-I-A dot com slash N-E-M to check out what they have to offer and save 10% with the code N-E-M. All right. So very concise pop song here. Do you even remember about the, you got this nice dual 12 string guitar intro. Then something similar, though not a repeat of the same part, but the same sort of gesture with the two guitars comes in later. Do you remember anything about that? I remember when I did the thing, the, the little guitar bit. That was the bit I did in, you know, when I was trying to do songs in the morning. And I had that and the, the chorus. 
and then the, the rest just kind of was like the, the generic chords that I use. They kind of fit it. I don't. I, one of the reasons I kind of like that song, it's quite mysterious to me as well how it came about, but it just did. And also, I didn't write many words for it, which is the opposite of what I usually do. But I had to add words because uh, because I was doing this. I had to, I had to look on Spotify. I had to listen to it on the evil empire that is Spotify. I could hear it because I couldn't be bothered to go upstairs and find the record. And they have lyrics on the thing. And all the lyrics are on Spotify are completely wrong. wrong. I was noticing that. I was going through it. Broadcasts from an Indian heart is what the, what the public lyrics. It was broadcast of an emptying heart. Yeah, yes. And whoever tried to transcribe it just gave up you can start your life over hurlia hums full of love what what hums full of lovers and chums what are you saying there i'm surprised they got that though lovers and chums is what i actually sing no but the beginning of the line something hums. oh yeah i don't, I don't remember oh, I don't. okay so this is not in the live set anymore no this is, i still we still play this a lot this is probably one of the only songs we play quite a lot because it's fun to play live it's kind of easy even though it's difficult I do remember that because we were doing it in Edwin Collins' beautiful studio and uh, I thought I was dying because I had this lump in my throat and uh, that wouldn't go away, and it, which just turned out to be acid reflux, by the way. I'm not dying. I mean, it was a long time ago, so if I was dying, I probably would be dead. But, you know, I had this permanent hypochondriac anxiety for the whole of the record. And my best friend at the time, John, who plays guitar and comic game, did play guitar and comic game. He had something similar thing. So this is like neurotic kind of like hypochondriac freaks just sitting there, just thinking about other things rather than the fact they were trying to make a really good record. One of our musical heroes kind of sitting in front of us who, you know, was recovering from a stroke and could only communicate in a very kind of, well, like a post-stroke way, but it was very funny and erudite in his his way and stuff so the whole experience was just very surreal and the guy from the crib gary from the cribs played the violin because he was helping out so was that throwing the violin in there which is a very distinct you know something that really marks this song out when that part comes in but that's not something you do live or you know is that something you would do on keyboard do you remember was that a producer thing or your thing or who, who came up with that I'm pretty sure it was probably Gary just kind of was like, oh, yeah, I could do, you know, I can play a bit of violin. I've, I think it'll sound good with that. He's got a great ear and he's, he's a great musician. And he, he was kind of helping out making the record. I'm pretty sure it was he. he and I maybe put a, would have thought, oh, I don't know. And as soon as he started doing it, it was great. That whole time was just odd. And I don't really understand where this song came from. So in terms of the arrangements, I mean, it sounds like from the first song, and maybe this one as well, that you're pretty freewheeling in terms of get talented people and just to kind of do whatever they feel is right. Is that, or are you more of a, are you more bossy than that? I tend to have an idea in Mm -hmm. my head of what I want it to sound like and then realize that that would just make everything sound terrible. I ask the the adults to kind of do whatever the hell they want and then they always improve the idea that I have in my head. And then the more they change it the, the more i like it so basically i shouldn't listen to my head i should just get different people to do different things but it doesn't work like that so does that apply to the harmonies that so that in this the arcade from the warm warm rain that falls it's got a very distinctive wandering downward harmony line But it sounds like it's you against yourself. Do you remember? Is that another band member or? It might be. I can't remember. And ben, ben Philipson, who plays guitar and does most of the harmonies on the last few Comic Game records. Wonderful singer and guitar player, his own solo stuff and everything. I usually just say, Ben, can you do a harmony? And kind of like throw it to him. And he always comes up with something good. It, it might have been that I said, this is, what, this is my idea. When you're doing these things, suddenly you think of something and you say, what about this? Or someone else goes, what about... But in these kind of situations, if it sounds good, it's usually someone like Ben. Uh-huh. This is sound good. And I, I'm just going to go, yeah. So what about that keyboard sound that's throughout this kind of farfisa? I don't know. It's a you know a very trebly organy sound that's kind of... That, that would be Anlor, who's my partner, the, the aforementioned partner. 
she has been a keyboard player for the last few years for Comic Gain, and she would have come up with that. She does her own keyboard. All right. It's kind of a circusy sound. I don't know. It doesn't quite fit with a William Burroughs, like depressing, we're both drug addicts and we're on the street or something. Like the whole song is more bouncy than one would associate with that lyric. I mean, there was no, there's not really a druggy. So it's more like it just, you know, the bottom of, you fall into the bottom. You're trying, but you can't quite get up kind of thing. And keyboard sounds, it's usually my go-to thing, which I say, if Anil asks me, like, what kind of keyboard sound do you want? I'm very simple. I like, you know, the, the seeds, keyboard sound, and question mark and the Mysterian. You know, all these kind of garage punk, very simple, teardrop explodes. And I like very simple kind of farfisa keyboard thing. And I can't escape that that's what I want, these little riffs. She comes up with something elaborate and I just kind of like say, no, nah, I'm not stupid, more stupid. Put your left hand behind your back, just only t- one finger at a time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if, if she only played the riff to 96 Tears on every song, I'd probably be happy. But <laughs> What's the, is there a significance of the particular St. James Park, Prospect Park, the different parks that are picked out, which sounds like, you know, sleeping in the, but was there a local significance to any of this or just sounded cool? Well, I lived near Finsbury Park at the time, and I slept in Finsbury Park a couple of times. And uh, Prospect Park was very close to where our friend Gary Olson lived and friends of ours from Brooklyn. Um, and it's just, just parks. I had this uh, thing of when you're kind of lost, you go to a park because it means something to you. It has some kind of sentimental attachment to your heart. Heart also rhymes with park. A lot of things rhyme with park. <laughs> You know, park rhymes with park. I think I did that in that song. I think the park was part of the Haven bit, the arcade. The arcade from the soft, warm rain that falls could be a park that has some kind of meaning to you. Sure. This one has a stinger. Well, like the whole song kind of ends. You know, the drums drop back out. We have that reintroduction of not the same riff, but it's the two guitars again, the two 12 strings. Two 12 strings. What is it? <laughs> What is that about? Usually it's a 12-string against something else, but these are clearly two 12-strings, right? I think there was maybe one a 12 and a 6. I don't remember. Okay, well, then it just is sounding, sounding like that to me. Pick with your fingers like that. Instead of strumming, you're going to do a picking thing. Gotcha. So it makes it sound more like it's a 12-string. And we come back with a full band just for this one, these words I send to an old friend, Put the, the little capper there. Yeah. Any sort of thoughts on like using that technique as a song ender? Yeah. What is your philosophy of how to end songs? I don't like fading. I think that, you know, songs should have an ending. I think it should have a closure, like a film. The film doesn't fade out. It just kind of is an ending. So I think you just do it by accident. You just kind of think it's like you end it because there has to be an ending or there doesn't have to be an ending and you, you kind of cut it off in the middle. I think I've done that before where you just cut it off in the middle. But some songs you want, this is meant to be a letter. Sure. Which it kind of is. You have to have an ending to a letter. You have to say, you're sincerely fuck up or whatever. <laughs> you know, you're sincerely your friend. And it's kind of like that. It's kind of like the song is a letter to a friend saying, I can't do this anymore. My life is this way. But I think I found a place. The place might be friendship, might be a park, might be something else. That's up to you to decide. Then it has to have this ending of like, you're sincerely. So you're saying the letter writer is sort of in the down in the dumps, but the, but a lot of the lyrics have it like, I'm sorry this happened to you. I'm sorry the, the mess you're in. I thought it was the recipient who is the one sleeping in parks, but, but maybe it's both. There's there's no mailing address to send to. Maybe you just like pointed out the, like, yeah. Well, I could just pretend that it's like both of them are having bad times mm-hmm. and they're, therefore he's, he's writing to him. Maybe he's writing to him to say, yeah, I know it's shit, but you know, me too. It'll be all right. Or maybe I started writing the song. <laughs> and I kind of forgot. Without me, there should be one more, that one mess less. So it's not even our friendship will fix things. It's our not being friends will maybe make things more tolerable. You can interpret it <laughs> how, how you want. <laughs> I like that you said that about fading because the kids in the club, the more recent version that we will play from Realistes, what, 2002 originally, is that right? Jesus, is it? Okay. It's a redo of a song from the early, early days of the band from 1992. Can you recall what was going on around the 2002 period and why you revived this song then? Or what was the deal with this song? This seems like a very anthemic in your live set forever and ever 
I, I definitely remember that it was one of the first, so I think it was the first single we did or the second single we did. And uh, at that point, I was in this, I wanted Comic Game to be uh, this kind of, I was a very big TV personalities and Jam and Style Council and all, you know, this kind of mod thing, but, but different. So I wanted to kind of write an anthem a bit like, um, you know, the song Beat Surrender by the Jam and there's Solid Bond in My Heart by Style Council. Very kind of like unifying kids. All these songs always seemed a bit kind of like for everyone. And I, <laughs> I kind of wanted it to be for the kind of weirdos and the awkward, shy, like me, you know, the people that were kind of shy and awkward and a bit strange. So it was this kind of imaginary anthem for people that it's hard to explain. In the way that Bruce Springsteen writes for the everyman, it's a unifying call to the working, whatever it is that he's doing. But I kind of wanted to do that in the kind of opposite way, where it's just for the kind of just the weirdos and the shy and the awkward and the wayward and slightly odd. It's got a very anthemic chorus, but for this version, we'll warn folks that you added this like 30 second intro in a way more lo-fi, as if to say... Nobody who likes just plain mainstream radio music is going to get past this because, because, you know. Oh, yeah, that thing. We didn't think like that. We just kind of thought that would sound good. Oh, okay. I mean, that whole record was just very, um, we did it at my best friend, Chris from California, who was in this band, The Peaches, and drummed on the album. And he was on holiday. And we lived around the corner from the place where we rehearsed at. And we kind of recorded the album. And I had about 30 songs. And the whole plan was just to make these really immediate songs, really kind of like Mm -hmm. direct, punchy kind of like, you know, songs. And not rehearse them, because that's my kind of style. (laughs) Just play the songs and then maybe add a couple of things afterwards and not get worried about it too much. Kind of like if you were like 15-year-olds making your first record. That was kind of what I wanted. And we did Kids at the Club because it kind of fitted in with the whole sure. ethos of what I wanted to do. I didn't think that probably no one bought that record. So it was like, yeah, this would be a good first song. It was kind of more down to that. I mean, his fingers would be bleeding at the end of the day. We only did two days. But we did about, we just endlessly played and drank beer and played and drank beer and played and drank. And no one knew this. I didn't know. There's a lot of those songs on that album where I don't know what's going to happen next. So I would just have made up, made up a chord. And that's what everyone would follow. And then we had to stick to that. But I didn't actually know what it was, what we were playing. And and that's kind of our most popular record, it seems. So (laughs) just goes to show how stupid pop music is. Those nights in 85 When the dance force kept us all alive 
Yeah, so it's got that main. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what you're channeling exactly? Which brand of early '60s garage rock or something is? <laughs> it was probably meant to be like a Motown Northern Soul. Oh, thing. of course, yes. I know for a fact that it was a Motown Northern Soul thing, but I actually ripped it off, and I don't use those words lightly. A New Order song, which I quite like the idea that this very <laughs> Motowny. Northern Soul mod 60s thing is actually a New Order riff because they were really easy to play. That's how I worked. It's, it's like, I can't play a really complicated... I can't sit down and listen to this kind of the impressions or something like that and work out what they're doing because it's just too complicated for me. But New Order, I can work out because they're just as inept as me at playing their instrument. So Strength, just a few years earlier... That actually has the Motown thing, but it's clear and you have horns and it's like, you know, complete. Whereas this is the sort of sloshy Sonic Youth version of, you know, a band covering the Motown thing. You have your influences, mm-hmm. but then you do them the way, anyway, you can. It's not by, by design sometimes. It's just because that's how it comes out. And then by it coming out the way it comes out, that's our sound then, a kind of really shitty version of the things we like <laughs> because we're not great musicians but i think that's more important because it's like it comes from what you are and what you feel so that song i've always kind of thought was a good comic game song because it epitomized what i wanted the band to be which is kind of doing these kind of anthems for weird people using the sources of music we loved but not being able to play it and therefore making something else it makes very good use I think it is a 60s thing. It was very clear in strength, Rachel's vocal, the way that that was trading off with you. and But it also works very well in here, kind of connotes some sort of 60s female backing. I don't know exactly what the reference is I should be pulling specifically. But, you know, her just nice, clear, is that just been like an essential part of the band that, okay, well, I don't have Sarah in the band anymore, but I'm going to get somebody that can fill that spot to provide a nice counterpoint. And yeah, I think, you know, you, your friends come around, you all get drunk because we're the kind of people we are. We just stick on our favorite records and we just start listening to great soul singles and Dex's Midnight Runners and special, you know, all these things that Vic Goddard or whatever it is that, that have made you friends things that have united you and bonded you as friends. And you can like drunkenly say, yeah, we should make these kind of songs and this is what we should do. And you you write these words down of things that mean something to you. I mean, the words tend to be more influenced by films and books. And then you try and put them together, but you can't because you don't know, you actually don't know how to do it. It's like if you, you know, you're you're given a computer to a chimpanzee kind of thing and say, write me a podcast or whatever it is. You come up with what you can, and then that's what happens. So you think, oh, they, all these songs, they're great. They're these great backing female vocals and blah, blah, blahs. So you do that, and it becomes something else. And that's what becomes what you are. You mentioned this, that you're going to kind of make an anthem about kids dancing at a club, but then you're tweaking it, that it's the kids at the club are hot enough. Okay, that's a show business. No, it's not it. Or hard enough? That's another Spotify mistake is... Uh, hard enough. Okay. So it's someone uh, not a native Britisher. <laughs> See, I thought this was somebody who was actually being careful about this one because I think in the old version, the kids of the club have faith enough. And then, but here it's, yeah, are faithly enough on one of the points or hold faintly enough? Those are two different iterations in the Spotify. You think those are wrong or? <laughs> I mean, the whole point of that chorus was it's like you have to imagine these are kind of shy, awkward. Uh huh. People that they've found this place, this club that they can go to for other similar awkward, strange, loser kind of people, and then they can express themselves. I'm one of those kind of people, and I I would go soul dancing and go to these places, and you were just going to explode into a different person because you would just start dancing, and it didn't matter. And if you want to fall in love, I guess shy people that's their main. You know, they want to find someone else. They they need an empathy, similar kind of compassion. And they can't find it because they're shy. So it was this thing of like, you're in this place, you can strive for that, you can find that romance that you desire. (laughs) Just a little arrangement thing. I mean, this wraps up nicely before three minutes, but then you stop everything and like, okay, well, let's have it come back for a kind of one more dance thing with this comically giant lead guitar sound. Is that just 
what your guitarist came up with or what? Well, that was me. Yeah, again, I had to listen to it for the first time in years. And it was like, yeah, that was, that was definitely because you can tell because I'm incapable of playing the same. But for guitar solos, I'm incapable of doing the same thing twice because I have no idea what I'm doing, even now. Where someone like Ben plays guitar in the band, it's incredible. You could say to him, like, I want you to, oh, I want it to sound like the Soft Boys, and he'll do some kind of, or Richard Thompson or Roger McGuinn or whatever, and he can do it. No, perfect. I can only play the way I play, which is a mixture of, of me trying to sound like things like Pete Townsend, maybe, or, so, or whoever it is. It's just a case of like, doing it. And if there's not enough bits that are out of tune, we keep it. I kind of feel it, you know, I kind of, that sounds pretentious again, but that's how I play. Sure. I think it was like the one and only take. And it just, luckily, there weren't too many stupid bits. Well, and maybe given what you just said about fade outs, the fact that this does fade out, but it's a pretty rapid fade out. Like it's from 408, it starts going down by 414, the song is over. Like ah. usually fade outs are quite, if it's a deliberate fade out, if it's just like, oh, it starts getting bad after this point, just make it. Yeah, I bet. I know why that's. <laughs> I bet because I make a really bad note. I'm also, I'm more, I'm more certain that I then going to go like, or do some terrible guitar thing. And um, it was decided that we just fade it out really quickly. All right. Because there's already earlier in that solo, some very, I will say, modal uh, chord choices of like, just a little noise. I don't mind a bit of that because, yeah. you know, we're not dire straits. I don't care about <laughs> perfection. It's, perfection, in fact, is the enemy. But sometimes there's, there's, there's some notes that you just can't, just can't listen to. <laughs> and do you know if this intro was even performed as part of the whole thing in this effect, this LP effect or whatever was added after the fact? Or was this like a completely like in post? I think it was after. I, I thought it was a good idea. Opening a record was to do something like that. I think the next record we made, uh, City Ford and Leaves, we did something similar. We did some kind of long intro. It really was a bad idea for both things because <laughs> you have to be quite dedicated to put on a new you know, a record. And they're both the, the start song for that album and the, the album that followed. Quite direct songs. But then we kind of nullified that by having these stupid long intros. I was seeing Sonic Youth as a comparison in different reviews of yours, because this, you know, if you had produced this song like Strength, well, it would be a straight ahead, you know, this is your single. This is your, yeah. as opposed to, it's anthemic, but it's it's actually going to represent what you're about and not some artificial, clean version of rock and roll. It's already been a single, so I guess maybe the idea is, it's not going to be a single. I'm lying. I have no idea what that would do. <laughs> I, I, at the time, thought it was a good idea. I think you just think this is how the record should sound, and that's all you care about, especially then. So the old version, the single version, was yeah, was actually brighter and clearer and was faster and in a totally different key. Yeah. I don't even have a copy. I can't even hear it. It's on YouTube. That's how I found it. You can find it yourself that way. But yeah, so, someone was commenting, oh, I would kill that oh, to own this one. I guess you can add your comments to like, yeah, me too. I, I don't <laughs> I don't have my own record. What happened with that is a very quick short story for you is that there was this nightclub called Blow Up, which is kind of like the kind of place that kids at the club was about. It was this kind of small, moddy club in North London above a pub. But they would play soul and 60s music and stuff. And I was DJing on the, one of the first nights they did it. And it was the day I got the box of singles that you were given your first record. And it was the, the Kids at the Club single. So I was very proud. You know, I was like, I've made a record and I have, whatever it was, 20 copies. But then I got drunk because I, I was so excited. And I ended up either giving them all away or throwing them across the dance floor while I was DJing. And I think I ended up with like one copy left at the end of the night, which was covered in beer stains or something. So that's why I don't have any of it. <laughs> well, yeah, it's that representative of, I guess, very different years, different sorts of things you're doing. I assume you've not been able to go out and play with the band recently, not only that you're in a different city and the pandemic. and I'm playing soon, well, in Paris solo, but I haven't 
played with the band for know, two years, maybe. Okay. So yeah, just looking at your Bandcamp page, we can sort of wrap up by saying what you're doing now. So in addition to the Pinecone Companion that just came out within the last week as we're recording this, you have this Beat of the Veins. So what is this project about? It sounds similarly lo-fi, homegrown. It's been great fun. I've been doing these Bandcamp albums at home with my own gear because I can't do anything else. And that was, I just wanted to make really short songs, really short kind of garage punk pop and then stupid songs stupid but good Mm -hmm. riffs you know kind of like a nuggets kind of thing okay nuggets is a bit post-punk and a bit garage and a bit psychedelic and a bit this and yeah they're fun fun to do i do i do in the room i'm talking to you now they take a month or two to do it keeps me busy and the pine cone companion was a similar thing but completely different and i've done a few more but the thing is i try to write good songs i've never written probably a good song and this striving of 30 years of trying to write like good songs always. I think you've just come up with the title of the episode, If I Feel Mean Enough. David Christian has never written a good song. That, <laughs> I won't <laughs> use that, but your words give me permission to do so. <laughs> as long as I've not just, just made just terrible songs. I think I've tried. Give me, give, give me that. I've tried to make. I've written a song. So I saw, also saw the Winter Fingers EP, which is I would have suggested we do, you know, include one of those. But it seems like these are repurposed older songs, "Asleep on the Snow," things from a couple records back. That was my Christmas cash-in. That was oh. me. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, that was just. Uh, I don't know how to explain it. It's just every four years or so, Comic Game make an album. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I like those 60s bands that made like two albums a year. Sure. I quite enjoy trying to write songs to try and make a good record. Because one day, maybe it will happen. So if I keep doing it, and also there's lots of songs to rip off. There's lots of songs I, I basically I love music. You know, I sit downstairs and I listen to records all the time and I listen to songs and I think, I can do that. Or oh, I could do something a bit like that. Or oh, this is great. If I mix this with that. And it's good to try and do that. But because I'm quite a limited musician, I think it helps because you you can therefore you can't just copy it. You can't just sit there and just do a virtuoso version of the thing you listen to. You have to kind of actually make an effort, and then something else comes out at the end of it because you can't do it. So that's what I'm trying to do. So you might as well make songs out of it. Well, let's conclude by introducing. I think you know, Kids in the Club. I think is a great, super catchy. Could be. Again, with with a different production and and stars aligning differently, could have been a you know a big radio thing. Mid eighties, mid eighties, which is one that you have Rachel sing. So this is again like you're not excited about enough about your own voice to want to hear it by itself. I do the same thing in my band that I have a female vocalist that I have sing select songs. So I completely sympathize. It isn't it? It's much better, much preferable. <laughs> and this does have the you know as bright a single as Comet Gain has put out. From your last album, 2018's Fire Razors Forever, 2019. Can you say a little about this before we play it and go on our way? I'm plagued by the presence, especially where I used to work in Soho in London, of a mixture of old black English London mods who have grown older and their hair's gone back and their bellies are bigger, but they still wear the same clothes. And old indie kids, because that's, I guess, the kind of people I grew up with. And they still cling on. The dream is still there, you know, and it happens straight with punks, people in the 60s. It's the same thing where they, they stay where they are and there's a sweetness to it. Hence the chorus, this is where you belong. It's good to belong to somewhere or some thing or some people, but I don't want to be there. I have my taps of nostalgia where I kind of want to be somewhere like that, but I kind of want to live in the present. So it, it, the song is about understanding the beauty and um, sweetness of those times that made you the kind of person you are and probably got you the friends you have. But don't stay there. If you stay there, you're in prison. You're in a kind of weird, never-ending prison. Well, thanks so much for doing this. I will tell folks without shame that you have written many, many good songs. And in fact, now having worked my way through the catalog, and then I, I looped back and was listening to more of Casino Classics, the first one this morning, and I got it way more. I could I don't, work I don't my way it. through the sludge, <laughs> the, the sludgy sound quality. But definitely there's something uh, more easily accessible for the new listener in something like mid-80s. So I'm glad we've got some of that out here. And certainly for any fan of 
the sort of Dylan-esque, sprawling, lyric-oriented pop songs, the new solo album works great. You know, even if that was not as apparent. I, actually, I was hearing some songs like that, even on Casino Classics. You know, that the strumming guitar thing, that's been there. I don't know that there, I don't know, do you feel like there was a fundamental right turn in your songwriting or that it's just been kind of a continuous growth? I hope there's been a bit of that. I think it's now, I feel like I've done enough record, <laughs> enough songs that I can just kind of spread it out a bit more. Right? Not worried about like this six minute song of words, I should make it into a three minute pop song. I kind of like, ah, I can just do it. I can just sing what I want for as long as I want. So yeah, there's a kind of freedom just because there's a a trail of other things behind you where you've done that. So it's like, you know, you get to that point where, and when it's just your name, you can do what you want. You got the psychological space, the career space, and, and now with these home recordings, the literal space and time that you can never be like, oh, I wish I'd recorded because you could just go do it again. Yeah, it's, it's, like, yeah. It's, like, literally, it's, like, it's quite exciting. I'm just sitting there like, oh, I'll do an instrumental album. And here it is, mid-80s. Thanks. We're exclamation marks, the about to murk, yeah. Shy and tender, we burn like tinder. We were fire in the heart, the 60s and the 80s. Jumpers with holes, playing our roles. It's one vessel with a red like a Vespa We were Friday night feathers or stripes and leathers Thanks so much to David, a fun and interesting singer-songwriter. You can find his recent work by looking up Comet Gain on Bandcamp. If you look to the blog post associated with this at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com, I will link to like the early version of Kids in the Club and other stuff to fill in the gaps. So take a look at that. And while you're there, make sure you are subscribed directly to the Nakedly Examined Music feed to get all of the episodes promptly. If you want to get them ad-free, you can get the supporter feed either through Apple Podcasts or patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. My next episode will be with Clive Nolan, a prog rock keyboardist 
with Pendragon and his own band Arena, Shadowlands, and he's written a few musicals and done collaborations with Oliver Wakeman, son of Rick Wakeman. Very interesting guy. I also just talked to Wesley Stace, a.k.a. John Wesley Harding, someone whose work I have long admired. Thanks so much for listening. Remember, if you want to suggest a guest or suggest yourself as a guest, feel free to email me at mark at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Hope you're doing well. Keep on musicking. Until next time, this is Mark Meyer signing off.